0: You have the Junta talking about wanting a new constitution. I don't have a lot of faith in, in military takeovers to write great democratic constitutions, but um, there, there may be some structural changes uh, that are necessary.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Amanda Yuan, and I am joined today by my co-host Franz Osilia. Today, we will discuss the recent events in Mali, and what a democratic future looks like for the Malian people. We will talk about the coup this summer, how it compares to the 2012 coup, and the recent transitional deal announced by the military government. Furthermore, we will explore the role of international actors and how they have contributed to the recent turmoil, as well as what they can do to help create a more democratic Malian society. To discuss these topics, joining us today on the podcast is Ambassador Michelle Gavin.
2: Ambassador Michelle Gavin is the Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. From 2011 to 2014, she was the United States Ambassador to Botswana and served concurrently as the United States Representative to the Southern African Development Community. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs.
1: Ambassador Gavin, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Ambassador, can you provide our listeners with some context to the events that have happened this summer in Mali? Um, What led to the massive protests and the recent military coup that ousted President Kida? Sure. Um, Well, as you suggest, there were uh, really
0: profoundly consequential protests throughout the summer in Mali. And they were led by a group of civil society leaders, opposition leaders, uh, and um, importantly, religious leaders. Uh, And the protests were largely about just a demonstration of discontent. And I think that's important because they were more about resistance and opposition than a a really clear vision about what the protesters wanted to see happen. But essentially, the dissatisfaction uh, was about uh, perceptions of rising corruption, uh, among Mali's political class, while the economy for most people in Mali, right, has been contracting. Um, obviously, everybody's economy has been affected by the pandemic, but uh, Mali's been on a downward trajectory for some time. Combined with really shocking levels of insecurity in the country, so Malians have been coping with a violent conflict. For years, despite the presence of a UN peacekeeping mission, despite the presence of the French military. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse for an awful lot of Malians. So, this was kind of a a manifestation of of, um, dissatisfaction and sort of disgust with the failure of the state to provide basic security, um, basic economic opportunity, the things, the kind of de minimis things that most. Uh, people ask of government.
1: So I know you said that there's a general sense of discontent that's um, riling up the protesters. Do they have specific goals? And um, what are those goals if they do Mm -hmm. have some? Well, as I suggested, the the protest movement was
0: um, diverse. And so there may be uh, entities within it who have very specific goals. Uh, There's a charismatic um, imam who uh, in the past has uh, indicated that he'd like to see Mali moving in a a more conservative uh, Islamic direction. But but he is not the whole movement. No one entity is the whole movement. And one thing that you see now post-coup is that this movement is struggling really to be influential in the behind-the-scenes negotiations about where Mali goes, um, for the obvious reason that when you have a coup, it's the people with guns who are making the decisions, uh, but also because they're divided amongst themselves. So there's a there's not one cohesive agenda that everybody can get behind.
2: And Ambassador Gavin, that is actually an excellent segue into our next question, which on September 12th, almost two weeks ago, Mali's military leadership agreed to an 18-month transition government. So could you please talk um, our listeners through these negotiations and how this compromise was reached and who it left out?
0: Well, I can try. Um, But I, I also, you know always want to be honest about the the limits of analysis from afar, right? So I'm, I'm certainly not uh, in the room and, and it's difficult sometimes to understand uh, exactly uh, whose voice is influential on any given day. But yes, um, on September 12th, there was this agreement reached um, between the 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 junta that executed the, the coup, the, the military leadership, right? And some of these political and civil society groups, there was a sort of three days of consultation that led to a, a charter for the transition, um, which essentially laid out this 18-month uh, plan. Now, the, the coup plotters had been pressing for a three-year timetable. So this was a concession. Um, Was it really a concession to domestic voices? Probably not. Uh, The the, uh, economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, had um, pushed back strongly against a long transitional period and had imposed sanctions. So there was pressure to shrink the timetable. But essentially what this charter uh, laid out is that there would be uh, a interim president, uh, and in in this agreement, it wasn't clear whether that would be a military or civilian leader. There would be a vice president and a transitional council serving as kind of a national assembly, and the president and vice president were to be chosen by a group of people appointed by the junta. So, it's not surprising when you kind of look at these the bare bones of these dynamics here that. Um, the military retain a great deal of control, right? They choose the people who do the choosing. Um, and uh, and indeed, now that they have announced who is going to be uh, the president and vice president, it's clear uh, that the military will be keeping a very firm hand uh, throughout this transitional period.
2: So one of the questions that I've had uh, reading about the subject is that it seems that the way that the transition was agreed on, I guess like it doesn't really reflect the the original goals of the protesters when we were seeing these, these mass protests. So I guess my question is, do you do you see this transition period actually alleviating the concerns of the of the protesters? Or do you see as a recipe of, yours, of more continuous protest in the next couple of months?
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, broadly, no, I don't see this whole process as likely to uh, address the concerns of the protesters, which fundamentally were governance concerns, right? Um, and there's polling that backs this up. Malians want government that works, that provides basic services, including security. They want that very much. Um, They want democracy, but they don't want to have to give up one for the other. And uh, is this likely to make governments um, more effective, more responsive to popular needs, more capable of addressing the underlying political problems uh, that fuel conflict in Mali? Uh, more capable of addressing the security concerns. It, it's hard to see how. Um, so no, I'm not uh, terribly optimistic uh, that this is trending in any kind of positive direction. Now, do I think there'll be mass protests uh, soon? No, I don't. Um, in part because, you know, there's a bit of a wait and see period, Uh It's the protesters were looking for change, right? Well, this is a change. And so now one has to see what this change delivers. I also think that some of the disarray we've seen in that protest movement would make it harder for some of those entities to mobilize people. And then finally, I do think it's important to point out that that, those mass movements uh, that we saw uh, that were about this frustration about governance, and that really kind of got tipped over the edge by some um, very problematic legislative elections that occurred in the spring and their aftermath, those were largely Bamako-based. Um, and some of the actors uh, involved in that mix were were people who had failed to achieve majorities at the ballot box in the past. So how representative uh, are those actors? That, that's a little hard to say too. I think it's fair based on the polling that people have been able to do in a very insecure environment to say that uh, Malians generally share a sense of dissatisfaction with their government, right? And deep concern uh, with both the economic and security situation of the country. But whether or not the leadership of these protest movements uh, really kind of commands a national following is also an open question.
1: So shifting gears a little bit, um, you brought up France a little bit earlier, but what has been the response of the international community to these events, um, in particular, France and the United Nations?
0: Sure. Well, um, starting with the UN, right, who there's a UN peacekeeping mission uh, in Mali. It's um, it's an incredibly dangerous mission. Uh, it's an incredibly expensive mission. Um and it's had very limited success in terms of uh, of bringing peace and security uh, to the country, despite some some innovation in the way the UN has tried to go about this particular peacekeeping mission. And the UN, of course, has has expressed dismay. I mean, there, there is still a global norm that that coups are not positive steps, right? So, of course. Um, there's been condemning of the coup, but 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 not any kind of talk about withdrawing the peacekeeping mission, which would serve nobody's interests. Um, particularly because you know Mali's insecurity is is linked to that of all its neighbors. It's a Sahelian problem as, as much as it is a Malian problem. So the UN uh, right now is um, showing some deference, I would say, to uh, the sub-regional body ECOWAS, um, as is the AU. And so ECOWAS has really been in the lead in terms of um, kind of the diplomatic approach to this. The UN has uh, been most outspoken lately in calling for the release of the various civilian leaders who are still in detention in the wake of the coup. So the former president was released. His health was not good. But you still have um, significant uh, members of the previous democratically elected elected uh, government who are being detained by the military, and the UN is, is very concerned about that. Now, France, um, which has made a, a massive commitment to Mali, uh, and the French talk about Mali as kind of their near abroad um, instability in Mali, they see as very directly uh, a threat to security in France. And of course, uh, the French have their long colonial history there, which is complex and problematic. Um, You know, France has over 5,000 troops in the Sahel, uh, probably most of them in Mali. Uh, They've made a a massive commitment to trying to address stability, again, without very good results. They've been made uncomfortable by the fact that popular discontent in Mali has um, also been directed at them. There's, there had been voices that were a part of those protest movements um, condemning France, uh, wanting to know uh, when France, France will get out of Mali. And you, you still hear some of that today, despite the fact that the, the coup plotters have made it very uh, clear that they uh, will work with the French and want the French to stay. It's a politically dicey thing for them because France is not popular in Mali. There's a lot of frustration about how little they've been able to deliver. So France has uh, re- responded with concern or alarm, but it remains committed for now to uh, to its military presence. Um, and I think similar to the UN and, and most international actors is looking for ECOWAS to sort of point a political direction forward that everyone can live with.
1: So what have been the reactions of other influential actors in the region, such as the African union um, and outside of the region, like the United States. Yeah. Um, So very similar. Uh,
0: The U S you know, obviously condemned the unseating of a democratically elected leader by a, by the military suspended military aid. Um, The, the AU has been following kind of a, a, Principle of of allowing a subregional organization to leave, but they expelled Mali uh, uh, again because there is this global norm that coups are not all right, and people worry very much about coup contagion. Um, no one wants to see uh, this become the uh, the method du-, du jour of expressing uh, political dissatisfaction or getting any kind of political transition going. Um, so so they're they're very much. Uh, uh, looking still to ECOWAS and that's why the next few days are actually so important so um, ECOWAS uh lead negotiator uh, former Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan has suggested that he'd like to see ECOWAS lift sanctions um, after this um, the interim president uh, is sworn in so Um, In this past week, the the Junta, uh, through that process from that uh, earlier agreement this month, had selected um, an interim president and vice president. There was some uh, uncertainty about whether it would be uh, palatable to ECOWAS because the vice president is, in fact, the Junta leader, um, and the president uh, is a retired military officer, a former defense uh, minister um and it's very much clear that the the military will remain in charge but it, it seems to be enough based on what good luck Jonathan has had to say over the last sort of 24 hours um and it, it may well be that that ecowas does lift the sanctions and endorse kind of this transitional arrangement
2: Ambassador Gavin this is this is the second coup that Mali has experienced over the last 10 years um with the first one occurring in 2012. I want to know how does the 2020 coup compare to the 2012 coup and what do these events teach us about the political and social challenges that face the country?
0: Great question. Um, so the, the 2012 uh, coup um, occurred at a, a time of uh, certainly insecurity in the country, uh, frustration with insecurity in the, the North. Um, but the, the security situation is dramatically different and much, much worse now. So, so that's one really big difference. Um, in, in 2012, you didn't have uh, as many uh, armed actors. You didn't have, frankly, a, a seven-year record of, of failure on the part of the international community working with Mali to try and restore security, um, and so the the security context and the international context in which this coup has occurred is is very different. At, at the same time, there are you know a, a lot of um, similarities in the sense that uh, popular dissatisfaction with government, uh, a sense that. The political class in, in Mali is um, unresponsive to citizen concerns, incapable of addressing security issues, that these are all similarities. And, and what all of that, I think, leads one to conclude is that you know, a coup in and of itself is, is highly unlikely to address kind of these underlying pathologies that have made Mali so sick for so long. Uh, and that there is a tremendous amount of political work to be done to make people feel that the state is more representative, more accountable, more responsible, um, and uh, a more kind of inclusive look at what a political roadmap uh, that addresses all of the different elements of insecurity that plague Mali today might look like because the the sort of old playbook is a, a 2015 agreement, the Algiers Accord, that, uh, you know, sort of provides a political framework for addressing some parts of Mali's conflict. But now there's much more conflict, many more actors. And uh, just sticking to that is not going to... Uh, not going to stabilize the situation. So so in a nutshell, things are much more complicated now and much more insecure.
1: Great. And I think you really speak to um, my next question, which is the discontent and the disconnect between the priorities of the Malian citizens and the priorities of political elites and the state. So could you explain to our listeners this disconnect um, and how international actors or other episodes in Mali's history have really fed into this um, feeling of discontent and disconnect.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, this is not unique uh, to Mali, and it, it, it happens in uh, a lot of places where you get kind of a, a political class that operates by... Um, co-opting often uh, opposition voices or dissenting voices, uh, so that essentially the strategy for dealing with uh, political problems becomes to um, share some degree of largesse, elite largesse, and uh, make everyone in that political class comfortable, right? So then the the kind of fundamental issues that may have been driving dissent or opposition never really get addressed. And I, I do think that uh, we've seen some of this in Mali and in lots of other states um, uh, around the world. So, so that's a, a piece of it, uh, certainly. Um, the fact, too, that there's been, you know, Mali is a very, very diverse country. And for a long time, the specific needs and concerns of uh, people in the north have been disregarded or treated with suspicion Um, which has, you know, led to a sense that the government in Bamako is not everybody's government. That helped, uh, you know, set a stage ripe for exploitation by extremists, uh, and it it informs this kind of sense of disconnect and a a lack of accountability. So I go back again to to looking at at polling of of Malian citizens and, and what they want, uh, there still is uh, a desire for democracy, but um, you know, democracy that has these kind of is meaningfully demand-driven and accountable. Uh, so just a, a chance to elect people who will keep themselves comfortable and um, maybe extend some of that comfort to uh, to political challengers. Obviously, that doesn't doesn't feel uh, representative or accountable. I think,
2: for Malian citizens. Ambassador Gavin, to wrap up the podcast, I want to shift focus to the post-coup um, democratic prospects of Mali. Mm. And I, I, when I think of, 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 of Mali's issues, it, it comes down to, I think, that the population wants the government to be responsive to its needs. But at the same time, it seems that Actors in the government have some serious security issues that they're concerned about and haven't been able to to address as well. So, how how can one when 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 we're thinking about building a sustainable democracy in Mali, how can one balance uh, these two, I guess, incentives uh, the incentives to 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 provide for the needs of the people and at the same time the incentive that the government has to address these serious security issues as well.
0: Right. Well, I, I wish I had all the answers. Um, that, that would be a good thing, not just for Mali, but but a number of other situations. But I, I do think, you know, look, on the bright side, Mali does have a record more than once of transitioning from military rule to democracy, right? In 91, um, after the 2012 coup. Uh, so, Think you know that's clearly possible, and and in some ways sort of a norm in Mali. So thinking about how can one strengthen the structures of democracy uh, so that you know the government is more responsive, and and here you know you have the junta talking about wanting a new constitution. Uh, I always you know uh, don't have a lot of faith in again, military takeovers to write great democratic constitutions. But um, there, there may be some structural changes uh, that are necessary. Clearly, in thinking about the security situation, uh, you know, changes to the way Malian forces have gone about trying to Uh, bring security to their country, because there there are numerous documented cases of really grave human rights abuses committed by Malian security forces against their own people. Um, You know, trying to find ways to buttress the legitimacy and accountability of state institutions uh, charged with addressing these things, it's going to be a long process, right? Nobody fixes these kinds of deep-seated governance problems overnight. But um, do I think Mali is in any way a hopeless case? A- a- absolutely not. It's a country that's shown tremendous resilience uh, in the past, and it will require both those in power in Bamako and the international actors working with them to recognize that the the realities of you know, fancy air-conditioned conference rooms in Bamako are not the realities of Mali as a whole, right? And really try and um, avoid a situation where there's this uh, kind of bubble in which people are are not just living their lives but making political decisions, uh, and that's going to, you know, require a lot of deliberate hard effort.
2: And talking about international actors, what should the role of international of the international community be in this? Rebuilding process going forward.
0: So I think you know, laying down some clear parameters about what the international community can and cannot support, um, insisting on a more inclusive uh, peace process for Mali, political the political element of peacemaking, one that is uh, is more inclusive uh, of all of the different. Actors involved in armed conflict in the country at this point, uh, you know, uh, a little more connectivity to uh, what international actors deployed on the ground outside of Bamako are hearing, and uh, the messages then that senior officials are delivering to counterparts in the capital. Uh, but at the end of the day, right? It is absolutely going to have to be a Malian-led process. So the international community can help by, uh, you know, applying pressure, insisting on inclusivity, uh, on clear dialogue, on civil society voices being heard. But there are real limits to international influence. Mali is a great case study in the limits of international influence, right? Seven years of costly international commitment to try and help bring some stability to the country, uh, that haven't worked. Uh, so, you know, I would argue that's because of a, a a problematic, uh, over-prioritizing of hard security issues by political dialogue, you know, the, the underlying actual conflicts, uh, being addressed, but also, um, you know, without political will, uh, among Mali's leaders, uh, it's it's nearly impossible to address uh, really
1: complicated problems. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I think I know that I'll be thinking a lot about this and watching what goes on in Mali over the next couple of weeks, and hopefully our listeners will be too. Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.